The reading today is Matthew 13, 24 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among, among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said to them nothing without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word for God's people. Good morning, Providence. It is a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Jake, and I get to serve here at the church, and I'm looking forward to what God has in store for us. For this morning, we have heard this passage. The question that we are going to be asking is, what is God doing while evil exists in our world? This last week, I reshared a post on Instagram, a quote from R.C. Sproul that shared about how God uses everything, even suffering in this world, for the good of those who follow him. 
And I had a few different people uh, message me, um, some Christians who would say amen or amen, this is good, and then some non-Christians who definitely had some challenges um, in response to this truth. And so one of those conversations ended up going longer, and I, uh, me and this other dude um, who I'm friends with were saying these paragraphs back and forth to one another, debating through this topic. And one of the challenges uh, that he gave was this argument. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why, how can evil exist in our world? If God is all-powerful and he has the ability to squash out evil, to take out anything out of this world that exists, why has God not done anything then? It must mean that if if God is all-powerful, it must mean that he's actually not all-loving or he would be motivated to save his people from agony. Now, on the other hand, if we say, no, no, actually God is all-loving, well, then if there's evil in the world, that must mean that God is not powerful enough to do anything about it. Because if he wants to do something about it, he would have. So therefore, if God wants to do something, but nothing's changed, he must not be all-powerful or he must be not all-loving. Therefore, the Christian God, a God who is both fully loving and perfectly sovereign, cannot exist. If there is a God, he is not trustworthy because either he doesn't love us or he isn't powerful enough to help. And friends, as I hear that argument and especially in weeks where there's a lot of troubles going on in this world, I think it's easy to come to that conclusion, especially if you don't have a Christian perspective. If God is all-powerful and loving, why is there an unjust war going on in Ukraine? Why are there hundreds of thousands of refugees leaving their lives behind to escape evil? Why is there unnecessary bloodshed happening? Why are innocent men, women, and children being murdered for simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Why are Christian and Missionary Alliance churches, our denomination, why are their church plants being destroyed alongside hospitals and schools? Past Ukraine, how many months ago were we mourning the martyrdom of Christians and in general the loss of life in Afghanistan? We are still being plagued by a pandemic that has stolen millions of lives around the world. And due to this pandemic, there's been a shortage of donated blood in India, which I discovered last week has led to slavers kidnapping other humans so that they can, so that they can slave them for their blood. Literal human farming is going on in our world today. What is, why is God allowing this to happen? For thousands of years, the people of Israel were looking for the Messiah, the Savior, who is going to arrive on the scene and lead the people of God into the kingdom of heaven. And that Messiah came 2,000 years ago and promised that with his coming, the kingdom of God was going to enter into this world. 2,000 years later, it can be easy to ask the question, is this really how the kingdom of God is supposed to look? Where is God and why is he not doing anything? Friends, Providence, can I confess to you that as I look at the world, sometimes my faith is also weak. That as I see the pain and trials that come upon the people of this earth, people here in our city and people across the globe, it is easy for me to question my God. I may accuse him of being more apathetic than actually in control of what's going on. But as I've read through this passage this last week, a passage that was assigned to me several weeks ago, I found myself weeping in a coffee shop this last Thursday as God has directly spoken into my doubt with his promises of who he is and that he provide proof that he is trustworthy. 
that even when I don't see it, even when it doesn't match my expectations for what the kingdom of God is going to look like, my God is doing a mighty work here in this world. And so my hope for this morning, my prayer, is that we would grow in our trust of our God. That despite the fact that there's evil and suffering in this world, our God is more sovereign and kind and patient than we could ever imagine, and he is doing more than we could ever imagine in this world, that even if we were told, we would not believe it. That our God is indeed working, but it may not be in the ways that we expect him to, and that is actually a good thing. So that is what we're going to walk through this morning. So Providence, would you bow your heads, and would you pray with me? Abba, God, would three things be true of this word today, Father? God, would our church leave with an exalted view of who you are. Father, that we would understand you more, that we would see your character. Father, that we would know that you are truly good despite the circumstances of this world. Father, that you are trustworthy, that you are worthy of our affections, and Father, that we can trust you with all the anxieties and all the trials and temptations that we experience here in the now. Father, would you humble us? Would you show us our sin? Would you show us the ways that we doubt? And Father, would you change us? God, as we encounter your word, as we encounter your Holy Spirit this morning, Father, would not leave us unchanged. But God, truly believe that you want to do a work in our church today that is going to impact them for eternity. So Father, would you be with us? We need you. Without you, this morning is worthless. So God, would you be with us? Jesus, I pray. Amen. So as we find ourselves in Matthew 13, we are continuing to walk through uh, a set of eight parables or stories that are used to illustrate spiritual lessons. As we come to the next three parables that Jesus is sharing, the parable of the farmer, mustard seed, and yeast, we see Jesus using allegory to communicate to us profound messages. In the first parable for today, we see that a farmer, who we found out later is to represent Jesus, has sowed good seeds in his field. However, in the middle of the night, night, the enemy, the devil, came in and sowed weeds amongst his farm. As the servants and laborers go to work the next day, they discover the bad seed, so they go to their master and question him, hey, were you the one that sowed this bad seed in the farm? But the master responds and says, and lets them know that it was not in fact him, but it was in fact the enemy, the devil. So then the farmers end up questioning, okay, do you want us to pull out the weeds then? That if there are weeds amongst your plants, among the good seed, wouldn't you want us to take out the bad weeds out of the garden so that your good seed can thrive? Now, we would assume that the master would want to take anything bad out of his garden. However, he responds unexpectedly. The master says, no. If you pull up the weeds, you're also going to pull up the good seeds too. Instead, Let us be patient for a better time to separate the good from the bad. So in this parable, the good and bad seeds represent believers and non-believers. There are those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and there are those who do not. For those who do not, whether they know it or not, they belong to the enemy of God, the devil. And thus, we read that there is a sobering future that awaits them. At the end of verse 39, Jesus explains that the harvest represents future judgment. The time when the weeds will be separated from the good plants is a terrifying condemnation for the wicked. In verse 40, Jesus says that the weeds are to be gathered and burned in the fire. In verses 41 through 42, he explains more of what this is going to look like. And it should be sobering for us as a church. Read with me. 
The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The day of judgment that's being described in this passage is going to be terrifying. And it is going to be far from pleasant. Province, I would ask of you, what emotions does this parable evoke within you? As I was reading through this scripture, I felt two different things as I walked through these different parables. The first thing that I felt was that when I see the evils of this world, I ask God, Father, what are you doing? Where is your justice? Why are you not making things right? And I think of God as too soft. On the other hand, when I read the passage that we just read, a passage about God's condemnation, I begin to swing to the other side of the spectrum. Oh, wait, fiery furnace? God, where is your mercy? Where is your grace? Why can you not be more gentle? And I think of my God as too harsh. How can God be all loving and send people into hell? Friends, God shows his mercy for sinners and his patience with us. If God wanted to, he could justly take any of us out of this world at any moment because we are sinful, because we've broken the law, because we have directly rebelled against the God of the universe who created us, who has done nothing but shown us his kindness. Yet, God does not choose to do so. God is patient with us. He shows us grace by giving us time to repent of our sins and place our faith in him. This is the gentleness and grace of our God. However, one day his love for his people and his desire for justice will prompt a final judgment. Someday the all-knowing God of the universe is going to see everything wrong that is in this world and he is going to wipe it away. He will gather all things that have sought to keep his people from his love and he will deliver justice. This understanding of who God is will give us peace and help us to trust him. What does that look like? When we go to God and say, why are things so unfair? God, where are you? Why haven't you done anything yet? May we remember his character and pray, Father, help me to be more patient like you. And when we go to God and say, Father, I don't want you to pour out justice. God, this doesn't feel right. Why haven't you done, God, why are you doing this right now? Would we remember that our God is patient and that anyone who turns to him has a chance to escape that judgment because Jesus sent his own, because Jesus came down to this earth and died on the cross for our sins. So, as the workers are commanded not to pull out the weeds too soon, we as God's people are to wait patiently for God to come in and make things right. As these workers are coming and saying, hey, can we now pronounce judgment? We see evil in the world. Can we condemn it? God says, no, no, wait. God, God's way of taking care of the evil in, in this world may not look the way that we expect it to, but understanding his character and that he's going to take care of it eventually is not just going to change the future, but it's also going to change the way we live our lives now. As the farmers were commanded, don't, re don't condemn the people of this world who have not placed their faith in God. So it is also true of us as we are Christians in this world and we see sin. 
So the first application of this passage is going to say that, hey, trust in God, trust in his peace, trust in his goodness when you see injustice in this world. And the second is that we are going to leave the condemnation up to our God and not take it into our own hands. Now, with that, this passage is not saying that we are not called to correct or rebuke one another in the church. There are various passages throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, that those who profess faith in Jesus are to call out fellow believers and point them towards truth. Galatians 6, James 5, Matthew 18 are all examples of this, that we as Christians are supposed to discern with one another and help one another to know what truth is and to seek after that truth. You cannot do that if you're not making a judgment of someone else. However, that judgment is different than condemnation. This is also not a passage that is telling us not to preach hell when we evangelize to other people. When we look at how the apostles preached in Acts or Jonah's very short message to the Ninevites, we see that judgment is essential to the gospel message. Why? If you tell people that Jesus wants to save them, but they do not know why they're being sa- what they're being saved from, it's like me telling you to take your family and move to Ukraine right now, and the only explanation I give to you is that you're going to be safe there. If you don't know what you're being saved from, you're not going to change your entire life. You're not going to move to Ukraine because that's going to look way more dangerous. And if you tell someone to repent of your sins so you can be saved, but they don't know what they're being saved from, why would they live a lifestyle in Christianity that is oftentimes more hard than what the, than the non-Christian life offers? We are commanded to tell people that God is someday going to pour out his wrath on sinners and we offer them a chance to repent because that is what God has offered to us. And friends, if you look at people in your life and you're thinking to yourself, man, I really don't want them to experience God's judgment and I want God to save them, the most loving thing, the most kind thing that you can do is not pronounce judgment on them, but to share with them the good news of Jesus so that they can place their faith in him and escape the judgment that is coming. Your role and your responsibility as a Christian is to bring the word of God to people and to be faithful to the mission that he has in store. But it is not your job to control the outcomes. You do not bring down judgment on those whom you disagree with politically. You don't bring down judgment on those who who profess faith in Jesus but have different secondary theology than you do. You don't condemn other parents for raising their children differently than you do. And you don't condemn the person who cuts you off in traffic and hope that they experience eternal damnation because they made you tap on your brake a little bit. We don't pronounce judgment on others because that is God's responsibility in his role. Further, we especially do not call for the condemnation of non-Christians in this world, thinking that we are better than him, thinking that we are better than them. Why? Your Bible will likely use words like weeds or bad seed to describe what the devil has sown in the field. However, the weed that the Jews would have understood to be in this passage is a weed called darnel. Here is the first definition I found on Google. Darnel, I think that's how you say it, is a mimic weed, neither entirely tame nor quite wild, that looks and behaves so much like wheat that it can't live without human assistance. Darnel seeds are stowaways. The plant's survival strategy requires its seeds to be harvested along with those of domesticated grasses stored and replanted for next season. Before the harvest comes, 
There is no apparent difference between the two plants that are sown into the field. If the workers came in and did their best to remove the darnel, they would very likely have pulled out wheat along with it. The only difference between God's predestined people and the non-Christians of this world is that God has lavished his grace on his children. That you were saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus, and because of this, you have no right to boast. You have been saved by the works of Jesus on the cross. You've done nothing to earn God's favor. The difference between the good seed and the bad seed is that God has shown his grace and mercy to some, and some have not repented and sought that out. So, how is God eventually going to separate the good seed from the bad? What time is he waiting for? He's going to wait until the harvest time to see what they're going to produce. If you ever ask the question, am I one of God's people? We heard a sermon recently a few weeks ago that, that dived into that topic more in depth. But you are going to know whether or not, based on whether you produce what God desires from you through your life. Now, I think I've said this the last two times that I preached here at Providence, and this quote just always comes to my mind as I get up here. But grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. You are saved by God, not because you became a good person. You are saved by God by his grace while you were still a sinner. You did not earn it. You did not get cleaned up enough. You were given it to you when you did not deserve it. However, as God has saved you and he has given you his Holy Spirit, as you continue walking with him, as you abide with him, as John 15 puts it, living life with God as the Spirit indwells within you is going to change every aspect of your life. And as a result of it, you are going to bear fruit. You are going to be changed. You are going to be made new. And God is going to use you in his kingdom. That's the first question that you can ask. Another question that you can ask to see if you are in the kingdom are you longing for the king to come back? What are Jesus' words for the believer about the harvest? Read with me in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All of the injustice of this world is eventually going to be judged by our perfect king. Every pain that you have ex ever experienced, every time that you've been rejected or betrayed, every time that you have been alienated or taken advantage of, every time that you've been assaulted, to every time someone has called you an idiot, God has seen all of it and he cares for his children. Someday he is going to make it right and you are going to be brought into a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will be perfectly joyful and peaceful. A place where you'll be enwrapped in the presence of God and you will never long for love again because you will receive all the love that God has to give. You will never feel powerless again because you will be in God's safety and you will never be left wanting again because God has so much in store for us. Thinking about that future changes the way that we live here in the present. John Bunyan describes hell in one of his books as a place of immense torment. But he says this, that there's ever a chance that you knew you were going to escape hell, whether you were in hell for 10,000 years or a million years, if you knew that someday that torment was going to come to an end, someday you would have a little bit of hope and a little bit of peace that your anguish was going to come to an end. That's what hell looks like, and that makes hell all the more terrifying. Well, what if we applied that to the world that we live in right now? What if we looked at the world, and no matter all the trials and the temptations and all the suffering that this world has to offer, all the terrible things that we could ever have to experience? Friends, 
through what Jesus has done for us, we have hope of escape. That someday when Christians die or Jesus comes back and raptures us, whichever one it is, you are likely going to die within the next hundred years. When that happens, you get to enter into eternity with God. No matter, no matter how terrible this world is, your suffering is going to come to an end. And that 80 years, 20, whatever it might be for you, is going to be nothing in comparison to the glory that is to come as you get to be in the presence of your God. Find your hope in that. And if your hope is in that, that is part of your faith to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So Christians, people in this room, do you find your hope in that kingdom? Do you long for the day for the day that Christ is going to return? Your perfectly loving and perfectly powerful God is preparing a place for you. Rest in that, hope in that. Now I feel like we could stop right there, right? I feel like that's a sermon. I feel like we could walk away from this. And there is something that God wants to show you about his character and how he wants us to find rest in him. But God has more in store for us today. As the first, uh, the first parable almost answers the question, what is God doing in the world while evil exists? Another argument that I've heard from non-Christians as I've shared the gospel with them is that, that sometimes as, you, as Christians think about heaven, know that heaven is a place where they're going to go to someday. When they know that this world is no longer going to exist, but it's going to be made new, sometimes they see Christians not really care about the world that they're in. That the God, that Christians and their God are so concerned about a far-off future that they don't care about, what the world, about the world right here and right now. Friends, this is so far from the truth. God is doing something new, but it's likely going to happen in ways that don't meet our expectations. Read with me the next two parables. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. In both of these pictures, something small has an immense expansion. The seed of the mustard tree, you can hold hundreds of them in your hands before they've been planted. However, as they grow, they start as small plants and they eventually turn into trees. And most of them grow between sizes of 6 to 20 feet. And on rare occasions, these tiny little seeds will grow to be 30 feet tall. It is so big that it goes from being something that is eaten by birds to becoming so large that birds can make their homes in them. That's a drastic, massive growth. The second image talks about leaven. In the making of bread, you would use a small amount of leaven or yeast, and it would spread throughout the entire batch. A small amount did immensely more than what you might expect. Both of these parables talk about something small growing. But what? Well, the, the scripture tells us these pictures represent the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is going to start off very small and in a way it is going to be hidden like yeast and bread. However, what will come forth from it is going to be inexplicably large as it spreads and grows. 
For centuries, God was promising the Messiah who was going to usher in the new kingdom. The Messiah who was going to bring eternal peace and prosperity to God's people. The Messiah who would free them from their chains and bring the children of God into glory. The Jews, as they were waiting for this king to come, they thought that this was going to be a warrior king. They thought it was going to be someone like King David who was going to crush all their enemies and was going to eradicate the people who had persecuted the Jews for hundreds and thousands of years. But how did that king come? Where would his ministry begin? What high tower in a massive city would the king of kings declare his impending conquest? I'll give you a hint. It's not what people expected. Read with me John 1. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The son of man's ministry began from a rural town. It was not a grand opening with thunder and lightning raining from the heavens, but it was a wedding celebration where he would turn water into wine so that a relative would not be embarrassed that their wedding feast had run out of alcohol. That is how the kingdom of heaven began advancing here on this earth. The kingdom of God started small and it was hidden to many. And then Jesus would gather 12 disciples to follow him and to partner with him in his ministry. Then the ministry turned to 13 people hoping to change the entire world. The kingdom of God started small and it was hidden to many. In Ephesians 3, we see that the mystery of the kingdom of heaven was kept hidden. Here are Paul's words in Ephesians 3. It says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is what makes the Gentiles is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery was kept hidden like a little leaven in a batch of dough, but eventually this, this mystery was not just going to stay in a single batch of ready-to-be-made bread, but it was going to mix in and it was going to change all the dough that was available. A little bit would spread vastly. The kingdom of God was not going to just stay with the Jews, God's chosen people. But God's plan from the beginning of time that it was that it was going to, to the Gentiles too, to the non-Jews of this world, everyone in this world. That the mercy of God was going to spread to all people of all tongues, of all nations, and that every batch of dough would be saturated with this yeast. This is where the kingdom of God is going. The kingdom of God was small, but it was going to grow larger than anyone can imagine. The kingdom of God was hidden, but it will saturate all and reach every people group so that there will be no place where it is not. This is the kingdom of God, how it has been advancing, and this is how it is going to continue advancing. Friends, this is good news. Just as God is more patient than we would expect, just as God is more sovereign and in control of everything in the universe than we might expect, the kingdom of God was ushered in and ministry is done in a way that is different from how we might expect. He didn't come crashing in, he didn't come crashing down and rain hellfire on the enemies of Israel, but he came in and evangelized and discipled a small group of people. And through that, many more would come to know Jesus. It is a mustard seed movement, one that starts small and grows larger. 
In the 1990s and the early 2000s, there was a surging movement in evangelism. And there's all these different strategies on how do we get these people who are falling away from the church to come to church, to, to think that church is relevant, all these different ideas. And one, uh, one process that I've labeled as the bait and switch was essentially this idea that churches would take their funds, would take their tithing, and they would put on these massive, giant events to try and draw people in. That there would be airplane shows, or there would be magic shows, or... Um, like all these different things going on that maybe people wouldn't go to church, but man, there's something really cool happening down the street. Okay, I'm going to go and check it out. And then with all the hype and everything going on, as these people show up to this free event, the, the people, the, the preachers, the pastors, the churches would take advantage of it to be able to say, hey, this is a free event for you, so can you endure this gospel message for a little bit? And they would give all this passion and try to show people that Jesus is awesome, that he's cool, that he's better than an airplane show, he's better than a magic show, and that if you place your faith in him, your life is going to be awesome. And when they did their altar calls, a lot of people would raise their hands and say, yeah, yeah, I want to be a part of this. This is exciting. This is fun. This is awesome. And after those people would get baptized and the celebrations would end and the, all the hype would die down, all of a sudden all those people who had raised their hand and believed that they had become Christians are nowhere to be found. That because they weren't grounded in community, because they, weren't, because they didn't understand how hard it would be to follow Jesus, eventually they would fade away and fall away. Crew did a study about 10 years ago on evangelism. They asked the question, for those who are committed to the church, those people who are living life on fire for Jesus, how did they come to know what was the evangelistic strategy that met them where they're at? And they found that 10% of committed believers came to know Jesus through preaching from a pulpit. That's not what I would have expected before I heard that statistic. While over 85% of committed believers came to know Jesus as Lord through relational moments outside of a Sunday sermon. Friends, the way the kingdom of God grows is not through dramatic big events, but it comes through the small when people place their faith in Jesus, there isn't lightning or thunder. There isn't fire raining from the heavens to show that they've entered from eternal death into eternal life. There isn't crashing of symbols or, or anything crazy like that. What is happening is hidden from the human eye because of the change in the heart. It is hidden from the human eye, but the kingdom of God comes crashing into God's people and they are forever changed. And just as the east will saturate the whole batch of dough, just as God's kingdom will advance to reach all people groups, the kingdom of God will mix in with every part of a Christian's life and change everything about them. It's a process. It takes time. But as you walk with Jesus, as he saturates you with his presence, with himself, it is going to leave you changed. In Providence, I'm thankful to be a part of a church that where I see these mustard seed mo moments happening quite frequently. I think about the Schultzes, and Maddie Schultz has been doing ministry at Creighton and has been through relational ministry for years. And that right now in this season, she has seen some of these Creighton athletes come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior after years of investment. PC3 has seen 17 college students give their lives to the Lord. And as I thought about each of those salvations, a majority of them did not come to know Jesus through a sermon. That maybe two or three of them came to know Jesus during a sermon or through preaching. A majority of them was other PC3 students inviting them in, sharing community with them, and preaching the gospel to them where they repented and believed. 
Global Friends partners with our church and, and, and reaches international students here in Omaha. And many of those students have never stepped inside a church, and yet we've seen many of them profess faith in Jesus. Our ministry of Santa Monica has been fruitful as women are finding hope in Christ. Our church has sent many missionaries overseas on short-term trips. And currently, Caitlin and Jane Regeer and our church are gearing up and raising support to be able to go to Thailand um, for several years to make an impact there. And there are multiple other missionaries in our small church that are gearing up and getting ready to go to the nations to preach the gospel. We've seen city groups multiply in our church, and they've grown too large to fit in single houses, and so they've needed to expand into multiple homes with multiple new leaders being raised up. I am thankful to be a part of Providence as we see these mustard seed moments happening in so many different places. So then, what is the challenge, or how do we apply this to our lives? If God's kingdom is going to start small and is going to saturate all the ends of the earth, it means that God can use even you to make an impact. It means that even if you don't see yourself as prolific or gifted in speaking, or you stumble across your words, or you don't know what giftings you have to provide to the church, God can use your smallness to make an impact that is larger than your life. In fact, God would actually prefer to do so because when you do, when you're able to see the kingdom of God advancing as God uses you in your faithfulness, you're not going to be able to give glory to yourself, but you're actually only going to be, give, be able to give glory to God. Through our weakness, he is made strong. Providence, if you have ears, would you hear? And would you go and let God use you to advance his kingdom? That you would go out into the world evangelizing and discipling and serving in ways. It may feel small to you. You may not see all the fruit all the time. But God, his ministry works in small ways and grows larger with his faithfulness. Now, there's one more thing I don't want us to miss, that as Jesus shares with us these three parables, there's also something underneath all of this that he is doing at the same time. Jesus is revealing himself in an unexpected way. So we might ask the question, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? And it literally tells us why. Read with me verse 34. All things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus revealing what the kingdom of God was going to be be like while using parables by revealing what was hidden and making it known to other people. At the same time of all this as he's communicating what the kingdom is like, he's also communicating that the kingdom has come. That Jesus is fulfilling prophecies that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he would ever step into the scene. What Jesus is doing right now is saying, I am faithful to my promises. From Genesis 3, God promised restoration of his kingdom. He promised a savior, a hero, who would come to this earth and make things right once again. For thousands of years, the Israelites expected a champion who would crush their enemies by the sword. But Jesus would usher in his kingdom through small movements by dying on the cross to pay for the sins of the people so the kingdom of God could enter into their hearts. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that's how we know that Jesus is the Messiah and know that God is going to be faithful and trustworthy to all of his promises forever. That our God doesn't change, but he's going to change everything. So friends, if you're a, if you're a person here in this room who has not given your life to Jesus, if you've got doubts, if you question his character, if you question if he's trustworthy, wherever it's at, 
Friends, would you know that this God is more loving and more in control of this world than we could ever imagine? And would you know that he is doing so much more in this world than we could possibly see because his kingdom is hidden in the hearts of his followers? And for those of you in this room who would say, I've given my life to Jesus and he is my Lord and Savior, someday I'm looking forward to being with him forever in heaven. Friends, will we not be so fixated on a future peace with God, on a future kingdom with God, but we know that the kingdom of God is here on this earth and that it lives within you and that God is calling for you to be faithful to his commandments. Would you step in that if you don't have people in your life that you're evangelizing to, if you don't have people that, you've been, that you are discipling or helping to walk with Jesus, if you, don't find, if you don't have places in your life where you're serving and giving your life up just as Jesus gave to you, friends, would you make commitments Would you repent of your apathy and would you actually do something, make an impact in the kingdom of God? It's not about you. It's all about him. But God is calling for you to co-labor with him in this effort. Providence, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for showing us your grace and mercy as Christians. Father, there's nothing that we did to deserve this. God, that there's nothing that we did to clean up or make ourselves right before you. But God, you have shown us your kindness in saving us when we did not deserve it. Father, would that seep into our hearts? Would we realize the weight of that, that the God of the universe would come down to earth, that he would be a Messiah, and he would literally lay down his life for his people? Father, would we know that you did that profoundly? God, that you did that in orchestrating your sovereignty of fulfilling prophecy. But God, you also did that out of a place of love, that you care for your children. So God, we know that you are all-powerful and all-loving. And God, through that, knowing that, we, that this world is suffering, God, knowing that this world is, is a tragedy in some ways, Father, we see the ways that you are working, and God, will we long for more of that. God, will we not be a people who are longing just for heaven, but God, will we long to see your kingdom moving in our lives to make a better impact. Father, with the people in this room, God, will we share the gospel faithfully, and God, would you save people through that faithfulness. God, would they become disciple makers, that they look at people who are younger in their faith, Father, um, God, that they would raise up other people to co-labor and to serve you and walk with you. And Father, they use all their giftings no matter what it is, God, that we want to give up everything that you have joyfully given us, God, that we would joyfully give it back to you. Because God, this is not our home and this is not our hope. So Father, would you help us to suffer for you, God, that we would give up our lives because you are better, you are greater. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.